Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Gulani, and today I'm actually recording a special episode in person at the Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center in Baltimore from the office of Dr. Al Garcia Romeo. So, Al, it's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, nice to meet you. So, we always like to ask our guests to put in their own words kind of what brought them to their position now. What brought you to your interest in psychedelics and mental health therapy, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, been a long journey. I think, you know, some of the early things that caught my attention. You know, it was really just growing up in uh, South Florida. I was doing a lot of reading and reading existential philosophy and reading, you know, basic anthropology. Um, I remember picking up uh, the teachings of Don Juan by Carlos Castaneda when I was young, 16 years old, and, you know, reading about that and these different practices that um, were involved in shamanism and different indigenous cultures. And, you know, I found that all fascinating. I think it sort of planted a seed uh, in a way of just, you know, becoming interested in other cultures and how they view the world. Uh, but it wasn't uh, anything that I acted on, you know, for the time I was just mainly just trying to pick up information, I suppose. Um, and college was, I think, similar for me. Undergraduate, I went to New Orleans and I was there for a few years. I um, really enjoyed my time there. Uh, in many ways, made a lot of great friends, um, but had a, uh, yeah, the benefits of a really nice liberal arts education, which allowed me to both study philosophy and psychology and study consciousness and Eastern religions and all of those things, I think were really formative for me in my, you know, late teens, early 20s. Again, just picking up uh, information about different cultures and um, certainly ideas about the mind, you know, became really central to what I was interested in at the time. And I ended up majoring in uh, psychology specifically. Um, and I loved the work that I was able to kind of engage in there. Um, but a lot of it was from a very Western psychological standpoint. And so I was studying behavioral neuroendocrinology and cognitive neuroscience and psychopathology and diagnosis. So, you know, a lot of that is very much in the Western canon of, of mind. And um, you know, that has a lot to do with neuroscience and biology, which I think is fascinating, and then a lot of a lot to do with the clinical side, including pathology. But it also felt like it was missing pieces of the puzzle to me. Uh, and that was something that became more apparent when I was studying Eastern religions and philosophy and um, things like Buddhism and Taoism and Hinduism. And eventually, one of my philosophy of mind professors had started a meditation club, and we would meet in the chapel on campus uh, every other week, I think it was, and you know, do different types of meditation practice. And we started with very, you know, basic mindfulness of the breath types of, of stuff and moved through different um, types of meditation over time to just kind of get a taste for these different techniques and experiences. And I think that experiential learning was huge for me because uh, so much of what I had been doing before was book-based, reading in books, and I loved that and I was, you know, good at it. But actually sitting and doing a meditation practice was a different thing altogether. And I had some really big experiences, you know, during that time, particularly using, you know, these um, meta loving kindness meditation practices. I had this really strong emotional visceral response. I remember just kind of opening my eyes at the end of one of the practices, they, you know, the bell would ring and it was over 
and I just had tears streaming down wow. my face and I didn't really understand why it had happened, but um, I knew that felt very uh, powerful. And so that continued to sort of propel me towards understanding sort of states of consciousness and altered states of consciousness and their significance for psychology and, and philosophy of mind. You know, so those were all the things that, you know, as a young man, I kind of dipped my toes in those waters and gotten really fascinated um, I didn't really know though what to do with that at the time. You know, it was not like there was a great uh, demand for me to go do that in any capacity after finishing my undergraduate degree. So, um, and I also had like a little, I don't know, I have had friends call it like a quarter life crisis. I was like my early 20s and didn't really know what my next step was. Um, and I went home to South Florida. I was having like a little bit of a mini mental, you know, crisis breakdown type existential, trying to figure out what what in the world am I doing here? What am I supposed to be doing? And, you know, during that time, I just kind of uh, saw my family, but yeah, you know, I was in South Florida. We partied a lot and we, you know, I would work in bars and I did different types of odd jobs, like working for Federal Express. Um, and it was fun. You know, I was in my early to mid twenties and um, there's a great scene down there, dance music and, you know, nightclubs and stuff like that. But eventually that started to wear thin. I kind of felt, like I needed to be doing something else. I wasn't really sure what that was. Um, it was towards the end of my undergraduate career when I had taken a Nietzsche course with uh, my professor, Michael Zimmerman at the time. And he noticed I was getting a little bit out there. Like, and by me, like I was becoming quite nihilistic. I mean, I, we read basically the complete works of Nietzsche, most of his important works cover to cover. And it was a fantastic class, but I got really kind of down, depressed, and feeling like there is, in a way, no meaning, you know, to doing much of anything. And um, that was sort of where I was at when I was finishing my undergraduate degree. And I had this interim period where I was doing odd jobs. And at that time, I eventually kind of came back around to a book that my professor recommended to me, which was Ken Wilber, A Brief History of Everything. And so he said, you should read this new philosopher, you know, more contemporary. He's a friend of Dr. Zimmerman's and actually I later got to meet Ken and it was a great honor because his work had such a huge impact on me. But, um, you know, a lot of uh, Wilbur's work was focused specifically on sort of interweaving and connecting, building bridges between Eastern philosophies, Western psychology, and looking for these sort of uh, systems, uh, approaches to understanding mind and consciousness, but, you know, also even bigger systems like the universe. And, and so really trying to come up with this coherent philosophical system that brought all this stuff together that I had been really interested in. And one of the things I picked up on in, in his books was this transpersonal psychology is sort of um, what they often call the fourth force in psychology. As you know, psychology developed, there was different schools that, that were uh, popular at different eras. And transpersonal psychology was one that kind of came um, a little bit after the humanistic existential psychology that started to pop up in the mid 20th century. Um, and that caught my attention for some reason. And perhaps because a big focus of transpersonal psychology is specifically altered states of consciousness. And so I ended up going online, finding you know places, and it didn't turn out to be very many places where you could study that kind of thing. But um, I found 
specifically a place called the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology, which is in Palo Alto since the 1970s. And I decided to go there and visit and talk to people. And I did, and it was beautiful. I've never been to Palo Alto. It's, you know, the Bay Area is is beautiful. Um, And then, you know, the people at the school were really inviting. And there were great professors there, including um, people like Jim Fadiman and Charles Tart and others who had done some really seminal work including uh, early psychedelic research. Actually, Jim Bannon was working on that back at Stanford in the 60s. We had we had Jim on the podcast, too. Yeah, he's great. His book, The Symphony of Selves, was very influential to me personally. Well, he, he's a really close friend, you know, great mentor. I mean, I took classes with him over and over again just so I could hang out with him and spend a lot of time with him because I felt like I learned so much um, being around him. Yeah, so anyways, that was the environment that I found when I got there. And sort of look back at what I was doing in South Florida, which was fine for the time, but it felt like it was, you know, I, I needed to take some next steps and make some moves. And so uh, that's what happened as I ended up ma- moving out there in 2007 to Palo Alto, um, was working uh, there in the library on the student job program and just taking all my classes, um, getting through the master's portion and then finishing the PhD and you know, I had gone there with this uh, grand design to come up with some sort of unified theory of quantum physics in mind. And then I realized when you're doing the dissertation, you know, you want to not bite off more than you can chew. And, you know, doing a focus project was quite good. And so I um, had some help and some uh, professors who sort of steered me towards things that were of interest. In particular, I was interested in transcendence and transcendent experiences that people have, which you can think of as similar to peak experiences as Maslow called them, or people talk about flow states or mystical type experiences that we study in the psychedelic literature. Um, And so how do those experiences sort of interact with mental health and personality? Because, uh, you know, we often think of those as very positive experiences. And for some people they are, you know, they can help people overcome addiction. They can help people become very resilient to life stressors. Um, but they can also have uh, actually some pretty negative consequences for some people, lead them into delusions, psychotic um, states, uh, sometimes hospitalization, sometimes worse. And so how does all of that happen? And so I started taking a deep dive into that for my dissertation work. And um, it was, you know, again, a wonderful time learning just about both the different systems of psychology and spirituality um, there in Palo Alto. But making great connections with my peers and my professors. And it was really towards the end of that period that I um, made a really important uh, connection, sort of serendipitously. I'd gone to a conference in Tucson in 2012, and I was given a small talk there about some of my dissertation research, self-transcendent experiences, you know, what are their outcomes and how do they come about? There was a lady in the room uh, by the name of Dr. Catherine McLean, and so she used to be here at Hopkins for, for a while, um, had been doing some uh, research with psilocybin, including at that time she was just presenting on uh, actually this paper they had just published on personality openness that was being increased after uh, high-dose psilocybin in some of the lab studies that they had done here um, with uh, Roland Griffiths earlier on. And yeah, she kind of approached me, we chatted, had a good conversation and um, had dinner. And eventually, you know, she, towards the end of the conference said, we have postdoctoral openings and you seem to be near completing your PhD. And, 
would you be interested in coming to work at Hopkins? I mean, there's a lot of research going on. There's a need for more people with a sort of different perspective like yours. And, um, you know, I basically jumped at the chance because it seemed like, you know, I had other work lined up and I was planning on taking it slow, um, just sort of completing my doctorate and um, my dissertation over a period of a couple of a few more semesters. But when I had the offer and it was time limited, so this was, I think, April when I met her and I interviewed in May and then they made an offer. They said, but you have to finish everything by June 30th and move to Baltimore or, or we can't make you the offer. And so I basically just put the pedal to the metal and, you know, wrapped everything up really quickly. And I had a, a ton of support from my friends and my roommates and my professors who, and my committee. And I finished uh, and I, you know, sure enough, drove cross country. And then I've been here ever since. So that was 2012. And that's sort of more or less how I got here in broad strokes. That's awesome. There's so many threads to pull on. And I, I really love that uh, your original interest was very much at the intersection of, you know, Western, what you were learning in the Western psychology framework and then Eastern, both experientially with your meditation practice, which you developed. And also I think in the literature, uh, we had a guest on the podcast a couple months ago named Scott Carney, who's since become a friend of mine. He wrote the book, What Doesn't Kill Us? And uh, helped popularize the Wim Hof method for breathing. And, and I think one of the books he's working on now is this intersection of when do you apply holistic kind of more Eastern style medicine versus, the, you know, Western style medicine. And, and there's definitely a nice balance and interplay. Um, so I want to get into what you've been up to over the past decade at, uh, at Hopkins. You've clearly been very productive in a lot of your talks and writing papers. And, you know, maybe we can start with like the last decade and then move into what, where you see the next couple of years going. So you got to Hopkins. How do you formulate your specific research interests? And what are some of the accomplishments that you are most proud of in that time here? Yeah, well, when I uh, was hired on here for the postdoc, um, I basically was handed a project. This was a small pilot project Matt Johnson had come up with in the prior years. Back, I think he started the study back in 2008, actually. Um, but because everybody was busy doing other stuff, including the healthy volunteer studies and later on the cancer study and so forth, um, there was sort of a lack of bandwidth for anyone to formally work on this small pilot study that Matt Johnson had conceived, which is specifically helping people who want to quit smoking cigarettes by using a combination of talk therapy with high dose psychedelics, well, specifically high dose psilocybin. Um, and that really is kind of a throwback to a lot of great work that happened in the 1960s, including here in Baltimore. There were a number of studies done both uh, using high-dose LSD to treat uh, alcohol dependence, uh, some of those showing a lot of promise. And then there was also a very nice study that was done here um, that was used in men who had a history of um, opioid dependence and showing that, again, high-dose LSD treatment really seemed to help facilitate prolonged abstinence um, even long after they had received the treatment. And so that early work really suggested that this could be a feasible type of intervention for substance use disorders. It's an area where we still struggle today. I'm working right now on an article uh, called Splitting the Atom of Addiction. And it's really about, you know, thinking about like, how do we help people um, deal with this? Because it's such a, you know, big endemic problem. And we made slow, but not spectacular progress, I would say, over the last 50 years on this problem. And 
anyways, Matt Johnson had come up with this idea um, to study specifically cigarette smokers because nobody had done it yet. Um, you know, back in the 1960s, smoking still wasn't really considered a big problem even. Um, and so that study had been slowly moving along. I think they had run four or five participants between 2008, 2012. And the idea was, you know, they're trying to target somewhere around a dozen people so that they can just take a look at what happened. If, if they received this treatment, you know, how are they responding to it? Um, and so my job basically for that first couple of years was just finish the study. So that was um, a really, really great fertile period for me to learn how to get in there, work with these individuals. You know, many were high functioning and um, they were not coming here to have a spiritual experience at all. They were really focused on, you know, solving a specific problem, which is how do I get off of this horrible habit that I kind of find myself stuck with? And lo and behold, you know, when 2014, we were able to publish the findings of that study. So a couple, after a couple of years, I'd run another 10 individuals, um, most of whom quit smoking and stayed quit. And so we ended up with that final sample size, 15 people. Um, They're all successful quitting, or not all successful quitting, but many of them were successful quitting. 80% were successful six months down the road. And we had uh, two thirds of them still successful a year later. So that's, you know, something that is much higher than you'd normally find in the regular tobacco smoking cessation uh, treatments, you know, nicotine patches or medicines that are available now, like Wellbutrin or Shantix, they work well for some people, but not for the majority. Usually you're seeing between 25 and 35% of people quit and stay quit for six months. So, you know, we definitely felt that was promising. And, but just so happened that that really opened the door for me to stick around here longer, actually, because um, Matt and I uh, were able to develop a bigger randomized trial. We wanted to test this with a control condition instead of just, you know, um, open label, which is what the initial pilot study was. Um, we were able to get a big influx of funding through after Research Institute to do this big study, um, which then allowed me to transition on the faculty here. And that's actually something I've been working on to this day. Um, I think we kind of designed the study initially in 2015, and then we started running into uh, participants. So far, the largest study of psilocybin we've done here at this laboratory. So there's 82 people that we enrolled and randomized, and half of them got nicotine patches, half of them got um, high-dose psilocybin. Everybody got CBT, um, the same type of program as we'd used previously. And then we just kind of see what happens. You know, we follow them up three months later, six months later, a year later. And we will be having the final study visit in a week or two um, so that we can finally finish all the, getting all the six month data from all these 82 individuals, which took a long time, of course. Uh, and COVID didn't do us any favors, but it feels really nice to get to that place of um, soon to, you know, be publishing those results uh, and because this was not a double blind study, we know what uh, group people were in and we can see, at least right now, all of the data we've seen have shown superiority of psilocybin at every follow-up wow. over um, eight to 10 weeks of nicotine patch. And so that's pretty remarkable. And um, that's been a huge amount of the work that I've been doing here is doing that, collecting your imaging data on these smokers as well as they move through the treatment program 
and really doing a lot of the psilocybin dosing and the hands-on work because that's something I personally enjoy um, is, you know, working with people as they go through this process, including, you know, going through these high-dose psilocybin sessions, which can be really intense, but also really transformative for a lot of people. Yeah, let's pull on that a bit too, because I know the way these sessions are set up are, they're fairly inward, right? So these psilocybin and other psychedelics can have a lot of outward, you know, visual changes, auditory changes, et cetera. And, you know, generally talk therapy or directing them, you're asking them questions about their life and stuff. And my understanding is you're doing this in the non-psilocybin sessions beforehand, getting their life story, whatnot. But then during the actual session, they're encouraged to be as inward and it's non-directive as possible. Um, and I'm curious, you know, what type of training do you need to go through? Because a lot of our audience may be interested in being guides or or pursuing this line of work. What type of training uh, do you go through to, to get good at this now that you've done so many of these? Well, there's not actually a good consensus on that. And what I would say is that probably in the next few years, we'll be getting some formal uh, criteria that will be pushed down from uh, regulatory bodies like the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, and so they're going to decide what kind of training is needed to be able to do psychedelic therapies as they become approved medicines. And uh, MDMA is going to be probably the first one of those since it's very close now to, to finishing both of the phase three trials necessary for approval. Psilocybin has not gotten there yet, but I would anticipate that's going to happen in a, probably about two to three years. And again, getting back to your question, um, I think what would be useful and, you know, a lot of the type of training that I had was similar to training that psychotherapists get, whether they're, you know, PhD, PsyD, masters in counseling, uh, different types of uh, psychotherapy tracks, you know, are really important because that's part of the process, particularly if you're focusing on clinical populations, not healthy volunteers. Um, but then having, you know, really sort of in-depth understanding of both the pharmacology of the drug, how it works, and a good grounded, you know, theory of what altered states of consciousness are like and what they mean and, and how they can be utilized in these types of therapeutic settings. And so there's not programs like that really out there. Um, and people are developing them now. And I teach in some of these, um, you know, programs that are out there which I try to provide my perspective. Um, but actually what we had when, we, when I arrived here, which I th- think has been really great, is this sort of um, apprenticeship model. And so I got to work with Catherine McLean and I got to sit with Matt Johnson. And I got to sit with Bill Richards and I got to sit with Mary Cosimano, who, you know, have done hundreds and hundreds of sessions. And by sitting with them and seeing how they work with people, um, and then also having all the theoretical background knowledge that I was able to get in graduate school and undergraduate, I think that was what sort of informed my clinical approach. Um, and, you know, that apprenticeship model was hugely influential for me to feel comfortable doing this type of thing. I've gone through other trainings now, including like MAPS training for MDMA therapy. And, you know, that is is great because you also have these other master therapists there like um, you know, the Mythhoffers, Michael and Annie Mythhoffer, who are, you know, there and they're able to give you that perspective of how they work with people, including, you know, video sessions of what they're doing and um, explaining why they say certain things and also giving you, I guess, probably most, you know, to the point here is uh, a window into understanding what the sessions can be like, because I think 
that's probably the most far removed from what you would consider your regular, you know, standard psychotherapy practice. And the reason I say that is because when people go into these altered states, our ability to predict what that's going to look like is very poor. And so we've seen all sorts of different responses from very blissful and, you know, giggles and happy spiritual or positive experiences, feelings of intense gratitude, love to the much more challenging experiences people can have, feelings of paranoia, panic, fear, anxiety. And so when you're coming into a high dose session, you never know what's going to happen. Even if you spent, usually we would have spent at least a month with that individual by then, you're getting to know them and um, building that therapeutic alliance. Um, but nevertheless, when you go into the session and the person takes the medicine, then you're going to have to sort of respond to the experience as it unfolds in real time. And that's, I think, uh, something that can be difficult, but again, having the experience of people who have done it for many years, um, you know, to guide you through that for me, was really, um, again, formative and, and helpful. Yeah, no, that's a, that's really good advice. This is one of the things that makes it so challenging. It seems to do this type of work is the variability in the set and, and setting, right? Like, uh, you know, cause the same person can have a different reaction to it. So I know that's, that's a challenge. And that's why I've been very impressed with the number of studies you personally seem are doing here. Do you want to take us through just quickly, like a hit list of some of the other studies, including the one that uh, maybe our audience could be most interested in maybe participating in? Oh yeah. Yeah. So we've been able to kind of build, you know, on the work over the last several years, um, you know, we've been really fortunate to have philanthropic support that has allowed us to, you know, establish the center back in 2019, Cohen Foundation, Tim Ferriss. We had a lot of really generous uh, supporters who believed in the work, which is great, and, you know, including a lot of the early work I mentioned. And then that allowed us to sort of take it to the next level where we're at right now, where, you know, the lab is able to investigate a lot of different conditions um, and, you know, again, we're starting to sort of dip our toes in the water. We're not doing a lot of these huge full-on randomized controlled trials. Strategically, it makes sense to do a smaller study, make sure that it seems to be well-tolerated and effective in some way before, you know, investing the resources to do these big studies. Um, but some of the small studies that, you know, have since been published from the group here have included, you know, major depression, there's work that's, you know, wrapping up now, anorexia nervosa. Um, Fred Barrett does have a nice big randomized trial now in people with uh, co-occurring uh, major depression and alcohol use disorder. Dave Yaden uh, is working on a study of people with obsessive compulsive disorder. So, you know, really starting to see the field expand. And that's, I think, really exciting time because of that. And some of the work that I've uh, since initiated uh, you know, in addition to the smoking cessation work, has uh, included studies in people with early stage Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and a lot of those folks are often dealing with comorbid neuropsychiatric uh, symptoms, including apathy, including depressed mood. As you can imagine, it's pretty depressing to get one of these diagnoses um, and to know that both that's going to be life limiting, it's going to come along with some pretty serious debilitating symptoms down the road. And, you know, for some people, the idea of losing their sense of self, losing their memory, I mean, existentially, I think, can be tremendously challenging. And so, you know, the idea there was really trying to 
use psilocybin as part of an intervention with people in the early stages, um, you know, mild cognitive impairment and, and Alzheimer's to see if uh, moderate and high dose psilocybin can have a positive impact on their mood, on their quality of life, if it does anything at all to their memory function, which we were testing uh, as a sort of exploratory area. You know, that study is about halfway done. We're still recruiting and looking for people for that. On that one, my understanding based on your other interviews and other um, conversations I've had is the two kind of mechanisms potentially, one is reducing their anxiety, like similar to the original cancer trials. Somebody has a end of life cancer diagnosis, uh, you know, reduced anxiety of, of death with psilocybin. So there's anxiety of getting a, not a terminal illness, but one that's so limiting as far as Alzheimer's dementia. So that's one mechanism is reducing the comorbid depressive and anxiety symptoms, which we know about psilocybin probably does. The second is um, is maybe the, on a neuronal level, right? The neuroplasticity, BDNF, all that stuff that potentially could actually improve memory. Or um, I think you're also doing stroke research. Are those the two mechanisms most likely, or are there other ones that are missing? Yeah, so the main one is, just as you said, I think the cancer study is a, a great parallel because um, biologically, we just knew that the people had a very uh, bad cancer diagnosis, which was biologically difficult for the system, obviously, but psychologically, that's also extremely challenging because it comes along with a lot of anxiety, depression, and you know, adverse impact on quality of life. So you know, the time that people have left, whatever that might be, they're still not really able to deeply enjoy that or engage in, with that uh, because they're so preoccupied with worrying about their illness. And so, yeah, with the Alzheimer's study specifically, the idea was that even if there's no impact on the um, Alzheimer's uh, specific symptoms, at least by reducing the depression and the anxiety around that, um, it would lead to potentially improved quality of life so that they can get the most out of the time that they do have. Um, and that's something that is congruent with that cancer study. Um, but from the biological standpoint, there's also this idea, you know, mainly from animal research where and cellular and preclinical uh, studies with psychedelics showing that one exposure to classic psychedelic like psilocybin can lead to both um, increased excitatory uh, activity in the brain that can also lead to changes in the way that the brain is processing information at the network level. And that, that could also lead to uh, formation of new synapses, formation of new connections uh, dendrites, you know, between neurons in important parts of the brain, like the prefrontal cortex or the hippocampus. Um, and, you know, the animal literature has shown that there's a role for these psychedelics in enhancing learning and memory processes like object consolidation. And so testing that out with people who are having memory uh, impairment is kind of a, a first step to see, does this do anything one way or another? Is it going to, um, you know, have no effect? Is it going to actually make things worse or is it going to make things better? And so we're doing that now as sort of an exploratory step before deciding whether or not this is a line of research that needs to be pursued any further. Hmm, very interesting. Um, and how about that the one study I think that our audience could be interested in participating in? Do you want to talk about, a bit about that one? Yeah, so that um, study specifically we're working, and we do a lot of online um, studies, crowdsource data, just finished a really nice study with Unlimited Sciences. We had people, um, almost a thousand people who took uh, surveys before and after they used psilocybin 
out in the real world, so not in the laboratory. That is in science. Yeah, so it allows us to get data from a lot more people, including people who we might have to like rule out of our studies often uh, because of different types of pre-existing conditions. And so to be able to track them over time and see what's going on with them is really fascinating. Um, but the study that you're talking about specifically is an online survey that we're doing right now for healthcare professionals, broadly speaking, that includes, you know, doctors and nurses, uh, therapists, social workers, pharmacists. And really what we're trying to do is just gather information about uh, both attitudes uh, about uses of psychedelics in the therapeutic setting and knowledge. And so we have little quizzes built into the study where we're asking people uh, both what they think is appropriate or not appropriate, what their concerns are about therapeutic applications. And this is not just about psilocybin, it's about psilocybin, MDMA, ketamine, and cannabis, actually. Uh, so we're asking about all those types of drugs and you know, asking people what they think about medical uses and how much they know about that. Uh, and so that's one that we have going on the website right now. It's hopkinspsychedelic.org. It's our healthcare professionals survey. Um, but, you know, we're trying to understand how sort of the current generation and the next generation of medical professionals perceive psychedelics and other types of substances and, you know, what they think about their utility potentially as medical and healthcare treatments. Um, so that's one that we have going on right now that is open. We're definitely inviting people to take the survey online. It usually takes about 20, 30 minutes, um, but we certainly appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely put that in the show notes and send it out because obviously, you know, this is one reason we even have the podcast is so that we're training clinicians of the future, ones who uh, aren't just, as Wayne Gretzky said, skating where the puck is right now, but where the puck is going because... As I've been reviewing my own osmosis content, all the psychiatry videos are about SSRIs, SNRIs, tricyclic antidepressants, MAOIs, all these uh, medications, a lot of which we don't actually know how they work and certainly are not often that effective. So the research coming out of your lab is very interesting uh, and the center in general, because that could potentially be an alternative and a more, much more effective alternative to what we traditionally have been using over the past 34 years. Yeah, and that's also what I think so exciting about this is because where we're at right now is studying psilocybin, studying MDMA, starting to scratch the surface of some of these other compounds too, because there's so many others out there, LSD, 5-MeO-DMT, ayahuasca, you know, novel psychoactive substances like 2CB. I mean, Sasha Shulgin just came up with so many, and then there's, there's a potential for so many more. And so as people are developing these and trying to understand the mechanisms behind them, just like you said, even the standard therapies that we use in psychiatry, um, you know, pharmacotherapies, uh, mechanisms are not always well understood. And I would say the same for the psychedelics. We're learning more, but as we learn more, you know, there's sort of this, the rabbit hole gets deeper. And so it's, it's really fascinating time to be involved in the work and then to see the expansion in all these different areas, uh, both the clinical utility, but also just to help promote basic human flourishing, spirituality and well-being, um, you know, things like enhancing the creative process. I think there's there's so much potentiality there. You know, again, going back to my early interest in psychology, I really remember just studying all the psychopathology and diagnosis and saying, this is like a really long list of things when things go wrong. Yeah. And then finally getting to Maslow and then go, going to study with Jim Bauman and others like him 
where he said that part of psychology is really focused on when things go wrong. But what about when things go right? What about when you have somebody who's really highly self-actualized, highly developed, high functioning, you know, what's going on there? And how do we replicate that? Or how do we help nurture that? And I think psychedelics have a huge role to play on that side of the fence as well. So again, the future is full of possibilities right now. Yeah, so prognosticating a bit, you know, you mentioned really great phase three results for MDMA with PTSD. We had Rick Doblin on the podcast in January. Nice. And obviously big conferences coming up, Psychedelic Science in June in Denver. Um, And so hopefully MDMA will be approved in the next year, year and a half. You you even mentioned it right here that potentially, if all goes well, psilocybin will be approved in the next year and a half to three years. Once these medications are approved, like ketamine is already FDA approved, where do you think things will go? Will the system rapidly increase the amount of research, off-label use? Like, what are your hopes there versus maybe the mix of maybe exploring you know, DMT, ayahuasca, all these other substances? How do you see that playing out over the next say, five, 10 years? It's really hard to say. I would, that's kind of my, you know, I, I have to say I don't know. Um, but what I hope is that First, you're going to see sort of rollout of MDMA-assisted therapy. And I would just point out briefly that that there's a difference with ketamine because ketamine's uh, approved for use as an anesthetic, which is how it's used in medicine and how it can be reimbursed in medicine. Now, if you're using it for psychiatric conditions off-label, you can have a clinic and do that because it's not a Schedule One drug, so it can be prescribed. But that's not something that insurances cover. And even though there's a strong basis of, of research showing that has rapid and robust antidepressant effects, uh, most people can't get it. And that's really, uh, I think, challenging right now. Um, with MDMA, my hope is that because it's getting approved as a treatment for PTSD, and because PTSD is such a, a big problem in terms of public health, that there's going to be pathways for people to access this treatment. And MAPS is working on you know, providing infrastructure for training, and eventually there will be therapists in clinics, and then people can go get these types of treatments uh, for post-traumatic stress, and then maybe for other conditions as well, as you suggested off-label, um, as you know, data continue to grow on use in other types of clinical conditions. And then you know, expanding that on further to see something similar happen with psilocybin, because a lot of the work with psilocybin is focused on major depression and Again, you see these robust, rapid-acting antidepressant effects seem to be fairly long-lasting in many individuals. And that, again, seems to be the tip of the iceberg because you're also seeing studies with LSD for anxiety and psilocybin you know, for substance use disorders. And so I think that work can really pave the way for hopefully accessibility in medical settings where people can go get treatments and have some kind of insurance coverage for these types of treatments because... I'm sure, you know, as you know, a physician in training now, I think a lot of the challenges of access and the health disparities that we deal with, you know, there's all these other structural issues involved, uh, whether we're talking about poverty or we're talking about just lack of direct access to health care or lack of access to something like insurance. So, you know, how those things are going to play out and how at a high level, you know, rescheduling is going to move forward is still a little bit up in the air. Um, but people like Rick and other uh, colleagues, you know, in this space, you know, I, I know are advocating heavily to get this into a place where 
people can get it because it's not just about studying it for me you know i would say a big part of the goal the end goal here was to get this in a place where you don't just have a hundred participants in a research study at johns hopkins but you know anybody who wants to quit smoking in the country can go to a clinic and get this type of treatment because we showed that it's it seems to work so that'd be incredible one incredible vision to, to skate tours both for the so-called pathologies, but then the human flourishing aspect. I know we're coming up in time, so I had two of the questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, first is, we like asking our guests for advice that they have. So say, you know, put yourself in the shoes of a young trainee right now, early stage healthcare professional or researcher. What advice would you give to them about meeting the challenges of this moment and going forward? You know, it's, uh, it's a difficult time, and it's hard for me to, to gauge this against any other time that people have been around, but I know that what we've seen in terms of, you know, the major sort of big picture events, COVID and climate change and, you know, just the, the mental health challenges that we're facing um, and potentially other stuff that's coming down the line is, is troubling. You know, other technological innovations have been great in some ways, but in others, perhaps have detracted from mental health as we get hyperconnected with, you know, all this and flooded with all this media. So, yeah, I think that the challenges are pretty great at this moment. Um, but, you know, we continue to find a way to push forward. And so I think, you know, the main thing is to get training education in the area that is of interest. And, you know, a lot of people ask me about getting specifically involved with doing work with psychedelics. And, yeah, you know, I always tell them, just get good training to do what you would do without psychedelics first. And then the psychedelic piece is likely to be easy to add on afterwards. If you're already somebody who's proficient in helping people uh, doing therapy for trauma, if you're somebody who is well-trained in dealing with mood disorders, substance use disorders, if you're somebody who is fascinated by being in the palliative care space, working with people near end of life, go do that. Go get your whatever it is that, you know, type of degree certification or licensure that will allow you to do that work. And then as we see these bigger kind of approvals come along at the federal level, certainly um, through FDA, that's going to open up opportunities for people to get that specialized training to do something like MDMA assisted therapy and, uh, you know, people with PTSD or to get a psilocybin assisted therapy licensure certificate to work with people, you know, dealing with whatever type of uh, condition. That's the sort of, to me, the path of least resistance in terms of using the uh, existing structures. There are people who are kind of going outside of that and trying to build other structures, which I think also has something to be said for that. But it's, you know, challenging and risky in in its own right. And I mean, I would say somebody who you know, went outside of the medical school system, had a successful foray into doing something, building something, and then now coming back into it, um, you know, you've been there, so you know, but it's it can be scary to try to get out there and build new structures um, and challenges. Totally. I think the interplay is, uh, is where a lot of the productivity comes from. It's like that real hardcore, substantial academic research that informs the, you know, scalable access-driven capitalistic aspect of the economy and figuring out that balance is, is, is difficult because people often go too far in either direction. Um, translational opportunities are very interesting. 
I, I agree with you 100% because what you're doing is really kind of getting a survey of like, what are the systems that I'm going to have to be working within and how do I make them work together towards the ends that I find most meaningful and appropriate. So it's, you know, that's, it seems like the, the way to do it. Totally. So my last question for you for now, because my hope is we'll have many future conversations. And obviously now that I'm here at Hopkins, I'd love to interact more. Um, is is there anything else that you want our audience to know about you, your research program, psychedelics, or, or transpersonal psychology, anything at all? They can't think of any any big uh, sort of uh, items that we haven't covered today. We definitely, I think, covered a lot of ground and, and got to talk on a lot of the important stuff. Um, you know, I do think a lot about or more about diversity in science since I've been in the field for a while now and also I've been observing the challenges that we can have getting diverse participant populations in here. And that's also been uh, a microcosm of the macrocosm that we see or vice versa, you know, getting medical students, getting faculty, getting researchers who are coming from diverse backgrounds. So, um, you know, it's just something I want to encourage because I feel like it's really important to be able to make this viable for everyone to have a stake in and to get benefit from. Totally, I think that's a really great Great note to end on. My hope is that some of the people listening to this podcast are from those uh, less represented groups that would be interested in pursuing this and other fields. So uh, with that, Al, thank you so much for your time and more importantly, for the work that you've been doing for many years now to, as we say, raise the line and strengthen our healthcare system. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.